Welcome, everyone. It's a beautiful day, beautiful week. You got me, Dr. Derek Williams, with you for our episode today, and I'm excited. I got someone else on with me. Dr. Philip Stanfield is joining me from Glendale, Arizona. How you doing, Philip? Hey, man. Doing good. Day before Thanksgiving, so happy to have some time off with the family. Yeah, it'll probably be the week after Thanksgiving by the time everybody hears this, so hopefully everybody had a great Thanksgiving. So, uh, Philip and I worked together in his acquisition in Glendale, and we'll uh, get into that quite a bit in this episode. As I was preparing for this, as, like we were talking about recording this podcast, I was looking back through my emails, and uh, I, you probably remember this, but I, I didn't remember this, that uh, I guess during dental school, you read one of my ebooks, and we emailed each other a little bit then. Right. Yeah, I don't remember the ebook, but oh, <laughs> I think I, but I think I remember reading it though. I think I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's cool to think because you know I talk to people each week that are like in a, a lot of different stages in life. Some even before dental school. Some during. Some you know a lot. Of, obviously, a lot of dentists. Some that are new in ownership, getting ready for ownership, or some that have been in ownership for a long time. So. It just goes to show, you know, there's, at every point along the way, you can do things to be preparing yourself, get ahead. Okay, so Philip, can you start, give a little bit of background on yourself, you know, how you decide to be dentist, getting into dental school, stuff like that. For deciding to be a dentist, I, I just kind of decided on it as a kid. The older I got, I never really found a reason to change directions. It, the more I learned about it, the more I kind of realized, hey, this is a uh, this is a pretty good, it's a pretty good career. It's a pretty good profession. So I went to Ohio State for dental school. I knew that I wanted to get into practice ownership pretty quickly. A lot of the things I liked about dentistry as a profession was contingent upon being owning the business. So share a little bit more about your experience in dental school. Like I was saying, I think most of our listeners have been dentists for several years, but we also have a good amount of listeners that are still in school and they're, you know, really interested in, you know, what can they do during this this period of time during school. I got a lot of backlash during school for spending time studying business, but it seems that it paid off for me. Can you just talk a little bit about your efforts and experience during school? I had the same. I think every now and then I have some people asked me why I was reading the books I was reading. And, you know, I was the kid in dental school who would skip our microbio class and <laughs> just listen to a podcast instead. I felt like I was learning more that way than some of those classes that they had for us in dental school. I had a vision for my life and I wanted to get there as quickly as possible. And I think I, it especially so at that time, because dental school did not resemble the life that I looked forward to in any way, shape or form. The roughness and you know toughness of dental school lit a fire underneath me to try to reach those goals even sooner. You know, and some classmates uh, thought it was a waste of time having, you know, watching me kind of learn about business. And, I, you know, I ultimately, I, I thought it was the exact opposite. Ultimately, Learning the business aspect was going to keep me free from the regular 40-hour work week that others had to do. And, you know, because of that studying and coaching currently in, in our practice, I'm, 
I'm just working 24 hours a week, three days and still hitting my goals. So yeah, that's awesome. Even for me, looking back during school, it just reminds me of that feeling of like, uh, I felt the same thing as you. Like, I think this is the right thing to be doing, right? Like, this makes the most sense as far as where I should be putting my time and energy. But at the same time, it's all theoretical at that point. It's like, you know, you still have a lot of time before the rubber hits the road. So it's, you know, kind of a lot of uh, self-development, doing a lot of things in your head and you just, you don't really know how much you've grown or how applicable your, your efforts are going to be until you're actually in that situation. So, okay. So now tell us just about your experience after graduating. So I graduated during the lockdown thing in 2020. And, um, I ended up right after graduating, I worked at a corporate office in, downtown Phoenix for a year. And despite most people's experiences uh, with corporate, I actually had a really awesome experience with this one. In fact, it was a difficult choice for me to leave it for practice ownership. I was making a lot of money. I was learning a ton of stuff from the doctors I got to work with. I only had to work three days a week. I didn't have to take on call or uh, calls from patients while I was off. My partners took those calls and saw those patients. You know, that was exactly why I feel like I had to leave. I knew that if I didn't act soon or do something that I was going to get too comfortable. So practice ownership was the only way that I could reach my goals. It was the reason I got into this in the first place. And so, you know, the biggest threat to me at that time was just being complacent and being happy that it's better than dental school, but realizing that I still can't hit those goals unless I uh, make the jump to ownership. Dude, that is really fascinating to me because it sounds like that was complete self-reflection on your part to be able to recognize that. And that's, in my opinion, like, that almost never happens. I mean, a lot of people like it's very rare to me, it seems that people recognize that they're in a really good situation and that that's a threat to their future because they want more than what they currently have. So how did you recognize that? What advice do you give to yourself now when you're in a situation like that? How do you balance those things out? What would you tell to, to other people in that type of situation? So I just kind of imagined doing my current situation with work for the rest of my life. And while it was better than probably most people had, that thought alone was enough to push me to action. I did this because I wanted, you know, freedom, freedom to pick my schedule, decide who I get to work with, freedom to build my practice around whatever I wanted or needed in my life. And, you know, it was tough because people that close people in my close circle of influence, you know, at the time and throughout the process of ownership, the first few months in the practice were, were pretty rocky for us. And this whole time you can't help, but, you know, wonder or think like, was this the right move? Was this really worth it? Should I have done this? But as we've, you and I worked together and pushed through the last year and a half, it's definitely, definitely been worth it. So. You and I, we actually started working together in your practice before you had closed. And I'm going to just 
put in a little plug or a share for others listening to share. This is something that I've actually started doing more in the last couple of years and kind of what it has been like and what, what I did with, with Philip was if you have a practice, you're basically in the process of buying. Let's say there's like two or three months before closing or something like that. You know that you want to work together in coaching, but you know, not sure how to make it work. What I've been doing is like a lot of times for, for someone in my position, working with a coach, you don't really need a ton of help or handholding during the process of working up to closing. So what I've had a lot of people do that they've enjoyed is that uh, they'll actually make like the first monthly payment and then we just put things on pause until closing. So, you know, if, if that takes two or three months, usually, you know, we're having, you know, one kind of big brainstorming planning session, coming up with strategies, you know, talking about how to meet the staff your first time, what are going to be the most important things to change in the practice, how quickly do we want to change or not change anyway, those kinds of things. And that's been a really good kind of option to allow for coaching to be in a little bit earlier than we really need it while we're having the the critical conversations that we need to have by having a little bit of flexibility as far as cost. So if any of you are out there and you're kind of in that situation or are going to be, feel free to reach out. And, uh, you know, I'm Maybe uh, Justin and Steve might be willing to do that same thing. You could ask them as well. Anyway, a little bit of a blurb there. Let's transition to, you know, let's start talking a little bit about the practice and some of your experiences. One thing that struck me in the beginning of working with you is that you had a decent amount of like door-to-door sales experience, which I think was a very big plus at the time. I just remember thinking, wow, okay, already have a really good foundation. If nothing else, like he's used to having to talk to people uh, and like put himself in uncomfortable situations. And anyone that has done that is generally going to be a lot more comfortable and able to do those things when it's their own business and they have people there. So can you just share a little bit about your background? You know, I know that we kind of altered things a little bit. Just kind of share your experiences in sales and kind of transitioning to being a dentist. So Before dental school, I did door-to-door sales for four years. I was selling pest control. The sale is obviously very different than something you do in healthcare. On one hand, pest control can be offered to someone who doesn't have many pest control issues, right? Dentistry, however, you know, we don't offer unnecessary treatment to patients. That being said, there is definitely good, better, and best when it comes to offering treatment to patients, though. Example being, you know, extract the tooth. All right, let's do a root canal and put a filling on top or let's do a root canal build up crown, right? Because most options are good, better, best when presenting treatment. I think that sales experience helps me to provide better outcomes for the patients. So, you know, I still ask the closing questions that I'm used to asking from my sales background. But after I've resolved a concern once or so, I don't usually push again if they're still hesitant. I just try to make them feel like I don't care if they accepted treatment or not. And, you know, this was something that you and I talked about. You know, in reality, I do care. It's important for their health and their self-confidence. It's good for my business, but ultimately people are less likely to say yes if they feel you are pushy. So, you know, I work hard to make sure it's low pressure when presenting, but I am smart about pushing to overcome concerns that actually can be overcome. Great thoughts there. I really do feel like this is 
an important aspect that is missing from not only dentistry, but from healthcare in general. You know, there's a lot of talk coming from doctors that feel like, you know, that they know best, that they are, you know, they're the one with the degree, with the experience, and that patients should just kind of almost, you know, blindly trust them. And obviously, there's a uh, an amount of trust that's necessary, but um, just got to be ways that we can increase communication to improve that. I had a patient last week, we finished the comp exam and had a treatment pl- plan together. And as I was about to leave the room, he said, thank you for talking to me and not at me. And it kind of caught me off guard. It just made my day. I was like, I was really impressed that he would recognize, you know, my efforts in trying to have a conversation and like you're saying, not push him to do what, you know, what I think is the best or what is right. But, you know, to really see, you know, what are his concerns and his priorities and financial situation to help come up with something that works the best for him. In reality, I think, you know, what you're getting at is that when patients feel like you're not just trying to reach your own financial goals and do what you want, that you're really trying to help them and choose what's best for them, that's ultimately when they open up more and are much more likely to accept treatment and move forward with it. You agree with that? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I want the patient to know that I'm there for them for whatever they're hoping to accomplish. And so while I'm doing my exams, I tend to ask the patient about their goals and kind of why they're coming to see me. I'm sure most doctors do. But on the lowest level, I'll ask them, you know, do you just want out of pain and nothing else? Or, you know, next step up, the question I'd ask would be, you know, do you want to get out of pain and at least maintain all of your current teeth? You know, let's not try to not do any extractions. Or lastly, do you want to get out of pain, save as many teeth and replace missing teeth? And, uh, you know, you can even go a step beyond that of do you want all of the above and do you want an awesome smile too. And so the patients that come to my practice tend to need quite a bit of work. And so I try to gauge kind of where they are and purposely build my treatment plans around their goals afterwards that way if they ever question the treatment plan and you know I just remind them you know this is what you wanted <laughs> it helps them commit to the treatment when they feel like they're the ones that are directing the path of the treatment and that they are in charge I also think that they come in thinking they want something and sometimes just being able to talk through the options with them you can you can take them from maybe just wanting to get out of pain and keep all their teeth. And you can convince them that, hey, you know, it's probably best to replace some of these teeth. And uh, you'd be really happy to feel like you could smile again, too, you know. And so even when they come in wanting one thing, you can help them to kind of realize that it's okay to want more as well. But I totally agree. I look at things very similarly it's okay for people to want levels of treatment kind of all along the spectrum. You know, that's why, again, it goes back to the the discussion and, and the questions and helping them to discuss things. And sometimes people think that they know what they want, but they, they may actually want something different. And, and again, that's our responsibility to kind of pick up on that and to recognize those times when it may be beneficial to say, hey, you know what, I think you should consider, you know, at least consider this option. Here's the benefits that you get from it. Yeah, the cost is more, but, you know, you're not going to have to deal with X, Y, Z, you know, talking in that kind of way is still a good way where 
you can change your language to saying exactly that. Let's say, I think that you should at least consider this idea rather than saying, oh, this is really what you're wanting. You're not wanting this. You're wanting this. So anyway, I think that's great. And I think that's pretty typical that a lot of times in, in sales, you're used to kind of like finding you know, any way to convince the person that they need it or could benefit it fr- from it and that, you know, it makes sense to sacrifice other areas in their life financially to be able to afford, you know, something else. So it's not uncommon for dentists to kind of alter things a little bit and trying to do, to have more conversations like we're talking about here. So, as far as like case acceptance and, you know, this whole conversation of treatment planning and stuff like that, you know, we talk quite, this is something that we, we really hammer in a lot in TLP is, is diagnosis, treatment planning, case acceptance, you know, looking at all of these kinds of things, because, you know, if you have all the patients in the world, but you're not able to have these types of conversations, you're not going to be able to be busy or it's not going to be a, a very productive busy. So as far as the next step, case acceptance. How have you tracked case acceptance? We have what we call a treatment tracker, just a piece of paper and uh, with some columns on it that says, basically, anytime treatment is presented, we write down the patient's name, the date, the dollar amount of treatment accepted, what treatment was accepted, or why they said no. So because you or your staff are all doing it by hand, was has this been something difficult to keep going or to do that way? I think the reason this worked is because this was a system already used by the practice manager and they had just kind of stopped it at some point. And so it was easy to implement because the staff already knew how to do it. And a plug on that is, you know, you don't have to change everything when you buy your office. The beauty of good systems already in place is that the staff already knows how to do them. So great point. And that's a, again, you know, when we're looking at a practice and looking at changes, a lot of times, you know, we'll review things and there's going to be like, all right, here's 20 things that we can change. Obviously we don't want to go in guns blazing. So it's like, okay, let's just look at the top two. Like what are the highest potential ROI items on this list that we can just focus on in the beginning and over time we'll we'll see opportunities for others but yeah it's always nice when there's a system or something in place or has been in place in the past that you can just re-implement or continue to it doesn't don't necessarily have to change everything so as far as case acceptance what are if you're using the treatment tracker what are your goals as far as that i mean kind of the expectation that we have in our office is um, we just try to schedule every new patient for something before they leave, you know, and if they're difficult or hesitant, at the very least, we want to put them on the schedule for their cleaning. We only have one hygienist and we tend to bring in new patients onto the doctor's side just for an exam and x-rays. And then, you know, if there's time that day, well, we can have the hygienist do that, but typically we schedule them back for the cleaning. So, as long as they stay a patient in our practice, eventually we will do the other treatment or something similar that we've diagnosed. And so, you know, you only lose if they leave without a next appointment. I think a lot of times the metric that we talk about is, is shooting for a diagnosis number that is about three times higher than your daily goal for production. But in, in your situation, I mean, essentially... You're just trying to retain 
every patient, every patient that comes through. And with uh, if you're doing all those things as far as diagnosing and having those proper uh, conversations with patients, helping them choose a treatment plan and uh, talking with them, not at them, if you're doing those kinds of things, then those are the patients that are going to come back. And they're going to be more committed to their treatment plans because they feel like they have had a say in them. And so they feel much more commitment to them versus, you know, feeling like they were kind of pressured into it or just given a plan. Like we've all had patients that we've gotten from other practices where the patient brings in their treatment plan. They're like, I don't know what all this is for. They just told me that, you know, this is what I need to get done. And anyway, so great to do that, to have kind of like your baseline goal as just helping everyone get a return appointment to start on the next thing. Okay, let's uh, switch gears a bit. I remember the first time looking at your practice numbers that you were about to purchase, one of my biggest concerns was seeing very low fee reimbursements, like what the office was actually getting paid for most of these procedures that were being done. And we talked about it that, you know, this was going to be a lot of work and you understood that and we're up for the challenge. Can you just talk about your thought process at that point? And, you know, maybe any thoughts that you have now being on the other end of it, knowing like what the challenges were, is there anything that you think, you know, you maybe didn't realize at the time? I started practicing dentistry in an office in downtown Phoenix where we took, you know, every single insurance possible. And um, there was a lot of marketing for the office. And so we were really busy all the time. So this kind of like low fee reimbursement, but busy office was something that I was used to seeing. It wasn't, you know, quite as scary to me. I think I learned to be more efficient as a dentist because of the previous office that I worked at. But I mean, ultimately the bottom line to me was just that the practice on paper was really profitable. So, you know, I, I didn't care quite as much about how things were done, just that, you know, it was, it was making money. So. Yeah. And I think having that background and kind of knowing like the fact that you could look at the numbers and realize the amount of work that had gone into it because you had kind of, you had been doing it in your associate position is great. You know, a lot of times potential buyers may just look at the finances and be like, oh yeah, it's very profitable. And then they get in there and maybe their speed isn't as, as quick. And then, you know, they end up more or less breaking even because they didn't realize, you know, they didn't recognize that in the beginning. I do think when I'm looking at different scenarios, and this is just me, there you have this big spectrum as far as like fee for service on one end and, you know, like taking every insurance under the sun on the other. But if I'm a new practice owner, I would almost always rather have a a busy practice that is lower fee than a very slow practice that is high fee. Because there's a lot of things that you can, you know, you can slowly drop one insurance at a time. And while that you can be busy, you can be, you know, learning a lot about how to streamline procedures, how to work through scheduling and how to like, you know, really do that versus, you know, if you're just fee for service and slow, 
it's going to be a little bit more of an uphill battle as far as marketing and like doing everything that you need to increase your patients. And then all the while, you know, slowly later figuring out how to optimize some of these other systems. Whereas, you know, if you're already very busy from the very beginning, you can learn to optimize those systems so that then as you start making changes and improving your reimbursements over time, then you're going to really start to see a lot of momentum. So talk through that process for you as far as like, what were you in network with? How did you decide which insurances and when to drop? Did you do it in big batches or just one at a time? What was your thought process like along the way? So I did it in big batches and I did it one at a time. We accepted a lot of insurances, but it all started because the credentialing process was taking forever. And um, we had patients that wanted to be seen in our practice. And because we weren't credentialed, we just started converting them to our in-office discount plan, cash patients, basically. And, and they started getting treatment done. So finally, when we got credentialed with access, the access insurances, the Medicaid, Medicare, those took the longest to get credentialed with. We had this group of converted cash patients that still had access that we had to switch back to our access fees, right? Because now we were credentialed. And uh, <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think about this before, but when I saw this, I was like, uh, like, who cares? Like the heck with it. And that same week I was like, let's just drop the access plans. After waiting months and months to get credentialed with it, I was like, if these people are fine with the in-office discount plan, then there's so many headaches that come with billing to access. The, the fees are super low. They ask for tons of information from you. They don't always pay you. It's just like a nightmare. And so... Access is Medicaid for those that are listening. Yes. Yeah. So Medicare insurances. And so I just wasn't going to go back to those low fees if those patients were willing to come see us as cash patients. It was so much easier on my staff to just administratively too. So I was just going to point out, I think that's impressive because a lot of times as when we're in positions of, of leadership, a lot of times we may want to just stick with what we originally planned just because we may be worried about feeling stupid, committing to something and then changing. I mean, that's, it's impressive that, you know, you made a decision and you were moving towards something, but, you know, you still had the ability to look at it subjectively and say, you know what, it actually doesn't make sense. We've discovered this other route. And I know that we talked about, you know, going that direction, but we're actually going to pivot and go this direction. I think that's super important to be able to do that. My staff, when I first got there, I knew the TLP model of one front office staff and I got there and I had two front office and an office manager. And a lot of the time they were telling me that there just wasn't enough time for them to do everything they needed throughout the day. And I just like, did, I just couldn't understand. I was like, how is this possible? Like, I feel like we have so much help up front and yet we still can't do everything we need to what's going on. And it wasn't until I kind of started looking at just the complication of all of the insurances and trying to simplify by dropping some of them that I stopped hearing that from them. And I, I haven't heard that from them. And I've lowered hours on some of those positions. And 
So it's, you know, besides the fees being better, it's also been been really helpful in terms of staff overhead and things like that too. Which sounds crazy. So then kind of once I finished that though, I, I've done the same with the, I did the same with the HMO plans for a similar reason. HMO patients liked coming to see us, but their fee schedules are, were terrible. So we just started dropping HMO plans um, a bit more slowly than access though. Now we only accept one HMO and just as our marketing continues to improve, we'll probably drop that last plan as well. But we were dropping one or two of those plans a month, the HMOs, and we printed off an, an HMO to in-office discount plan conversion sheet. And uh, we would just give those to any patient whose insurance was going to be dropped at their next cleaning. So we honored their price for that cleaning and just told them, hey, next time, you know, this is what's going to happen. And most of these patients were already paying 20 bucks a month for their HMO plan. So we offered our in-office plan for free for three years. And then we showed them just kind of how much money we could save them on their membership or their insurance. And, um, you know, HMOs are kind of perfect for switching to cash patients because, you know, that's essentially already what they are, except the difference is that the HMO fee schedules are terrible. And so, you know, it was good, I think, with the HMOs to wait about six months to a year before doing, before dropping those plans, just in this case, because I, I think we had built enough rapport with the patients at that point that they actually wanted to stay with us. When we converted them, you know, we told them that at their cleanings, not over the phone. And like I said, you know, we honored their HMO prices for that, that day and then explained the next time it would switch. And by doing this in person in the office and offering that plan for free, I think that helps with converting quite a few of our, you know, patients over to the be cash patients. That's a really ideal plan. I think one of the things I hope everyone's picking up on is the fact that, you know, a lot of times when you hear of of a dentist or a practice dropping a plan, a lot of times they'll just like send out a letter and let everyone know or something like that. But for you to like wait where you could go through a full like six month cycle and do it one on one in conversation, tell them and explain the switch and everything is really an impressive way to do it. So uh, can you explain some uh I don't know, like uh, quick, simple plans, what this would look like, you know, how much would they, they pay for your in-office plan? And like, how did you set up the fees and set everything up from uh, the initial get-go? So the plan's normally like a hundred bucks a year, and then they just pay for their cleaning, which is usually 80 bucks. So uh, about 260 a year for profi patients, and then 350-ish if they repair up maintenance just because of one extra cleaning. Most HMO patients were paying at least 250 a year for their plan alone, plus whatever they had to pay for their cleaning or their perio maintenance. Um, so if it was a, if it was an HMO and they were profi patients, it was usually a similar cost for them to switch to us because profis are usually free on HMO plans. But most of our patients weren't profis. Most of our patients are on perio maintenance on the HMO plans. I think whoever's offering HMO plans to people in my area, they're offering them to older people. <laughs> so most of my patients were saving quite a bit of money by switching because 
you know, they were paying for the perio maintenance, they're paying for the HMO plans and, uh, the perio maintenances have fees on them. So it ended up being helpful. What about for a patient that needs a lot of work, is it still going to save them money? I mean, I'm obviously I'm all supportive of this plan. I'm kind of playing devil's advocate in the situation that like someone needed a lot of treatment. Would that be more difficult to get them to switch because it would have been more expensive? So the in-office discount plan definitely had higher fees for treatment. You know, when we were explaining the conversion sheet, we just focus on the typical cost though when going to the dentist, like profies and exams, not some future treatment costs that at that moment wasn't currently needed. So additionally, we explained that the decision was done to simplify operations in the office and that we loved having them as patients and we love for them to stay, which is why we offer the plan to them for free, but that we were dropping a few insurance plans to simplify administrative duties at the office. And so Besides improving our fees, that was the truth of it. You know, accepting a bunch of HMO plans is complex and they have weird ways of calculating fees that I have never seen with any other kind of plan. It was obnoxious treatment planning for that kind of stuff. And we tried to just develop a relationship with patients so that, you know, when we offered this kind of ultimatum to them, people would choose to stick with us because we were nice to them and we were kind and they loved coming to see us. And we tried to just take the cost out of the equation and just help them to choose us because of the experience. Yeah. I think you did a great job of making the decision easy for them, making it almost like it would have been more difficult for them to find another office because of how comfortable they were, how like you thought through all their concerns and and came up with solutions beforehand. So really a well laid out plan, well executed. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap things up there for today. We still got a lot more to talk about. So we're going to have you back again and finish up and and do the, the rest of what we have planned to talk about, which I'm excited, which I think that's when we're going to really get into some of the meat of this stuff is having to do with growing. How do we focus as far as business versus clinical? You know, what has your growth been like as far as the numbers? How are you continuing to push those kinds of things? So thanks a lot. Appreciate you coming on the show and um, everyone tune in next time. We will finish up with Dr. Stanfield to uh, keep this going. Sicker than your average.